Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show. I am Ezra Klein. I'm happy you're here. And I am excited about this week's show. We have Chris Hayes, host of All In with Chris Hayes, the primetime MSNBC show, and also the author of The Twilight of the Elites, and most recently, Colony in a Nation. I've known Chris a long, long time, actually, and he is one of the smartest, most incisive people I have just ever met on politics. And this conversation is one I've wanted to have really since we began the show. And it more than lived up to my expectations. We talk about really everything going on right now, but but broadly about the issues of democracy. How do people actually know what they think they know? Race and policing, humiliation and politics, the power of a politics of order, how Trump got where he is, how to be decent in this era in politics, uh, and much, much, much more. I'm not going to do too much preview here because it is just a lot of fun, and I think you should just listen to it. One little plug before we get into this show. Uh, my colleague at Vox, Todd Vanderwerf, he is our critic at large. He has an awesome new interview show, I Think You're Interesting, where he talks to really most fascinating people in culture today, he goes really deep into how they do their work, what work they do, why their work is so great. Uh, I've been listening. I absolutely love it. And I think you will, too. You can find I Think You're Interesting wherever you get your fine podcasts. Uh, and also, please send me questions for the upcoming Ask Me Anything episode of this podcast. Uh, last time, you all sent in a bunch of great questions, and I would love to have more from you for this coming one. All that said, here is Chris Hayes. All right, Chris Hayes, welcome to the podcast. It's awesome to be here. I, I have been looking forward to having you on literally since I launched it. <laughs> <laughs> I've just waited a long time until <laughs> so your book came out. So, all right, we you have a new book, Colony in a Nation. Mm -hmm. We are going to talk about that later. Yep. Okay. Uh, I want to first talk about your your first book, Twilight of the Elites. Yeah. When I asked people what I should ask you about, I got dozens of Twilight of the Elites questions about, did you feel it's it's been prescient? What do you think about its thesis now? I saw it has shot up the Amazon charts. People should go out and, and shoot it up further by Twilight of the Elites and Colony in a Nation. It's a Chris Hayes box set. <laughs> Real quick, for those who haven't read it, give me the capsule thesis of Twilight of the Elites. That the country was – had experienced a sort of cascade of elite failure and uh, that the reverberations of that were this crisis of authority in American life, a declining trust in all our pillar institutions, um, skepticism of the good faith or competency of the elites and a kind of vacuum that grew out of that that could be filled by possible authoritarian solutions. <laughs> Um, there's a lot of sort of subsidiary arguments, one of them sort of about meritocracy and the ways that it has appeared to fail 
despite the fact that the people that it has produced think it's the best thing in the world, which I think is pretty germane to what happened in, in the election. In some ways, I think the chapter that is the most relevant is the chapter about how we process information and the relationship between knowledge formation and trust. So the only reason we know things is because we got them from a trusted source. Like, why do I know the earth is round? You know, this is funny. This is a part of the book I actually come back to the most often. I've come back to this part of the book and quoted it dozens of times. Well, it's the part, I think it's the part in some ways that, that is the most relevant, which is that I just know the world's round because like a bunch of people told me it was. <laughs> I trust all of them. And also there's a, like there's a sort of consensus around it. Right. But so many things we know or think we know, like if I read you analyzing the effect of the Republican health care bill. I just don't think you're lying about it. So like if I see a Vox chart that says like these people will see higher deductibles, I now know those people will have higher deductibles. But it's only because I trust what you're saying. And so when you muck with that trust, when the trust starts to become untethered or where trust is incredibly balkanized, the entire foundation for like social consensus and knowledge formation gets completely destroyed. And one of the funniest things is that a huge part of that chapter is Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, there's this there's this sort of framework in the book about institutionalists and insurrectionists, people that kind of want to like rebuild the institutions versus tear them down. And I I talk about Julian Assange as like the ultimate, the ultimate insurrectionist who, in Dungeons and Dragons terms, would be chaotic neutral, right? Like he's <laughs> like just wants to blow it all up. So so. I actually really like that you started here because it, it speaks to something that I find to be a tension in the book. So I have come to have two views on the book, and I'm, I'm curious uh, if you feel any of this friction. On the one hand, the idea of elite failure, cascading elite failure, as you put it, clearly true. The idea of a crisis of elite authority, completely true. The book, I would argue, or, or at least the way I read it, ends in a space that I think is comfortable in American politics, which is the cure for too much elitism is more small-d democracy. Mm -hmm. And as much as I think we have seen a lot of elite failure in the last couple of years, I'm not sure small-d democracy is looking so good either. Yeah, I mean that – well, I guess the question is what does small-d democracy mean, right? I mean so at some level, I guess that gets to a question about what – how you constitute a public. Okay. <laughs> well, let me let me phrase yeah, the question yeah. maybe more sharply then, because I, I think Trump is the backdrop of a lot of this particular conversation. You think? <laughs> or I'll, I actually talk to people now about what I call the the Trump trap door. Mm-hmm. You'll be having a conversation about some totally normal thing, and right, all of a like, sudden, there's a great new noodle. The, there's a great new noodle place. You know who also likes <laughs> yeah, noodles? Exactly. Ivanka Trump. You exactly. know, it's like it happens all. You also you have to put these sharp guardrails on conversations. <laughs> but I think you can look at Trump as representing. Both kinds of failure simultaneously, I think and, and which a great, one? A great and which point. one is is primary? I think is a good question, right? On the one hand, if the Republican base and voters more generally had not completely lost faith in their establishment, Trump would have never been able to rise. On the other hand, if the Republican base and and broader trends in American politics had not totally destroyed the power of the establishment to control primaries, yeah. to lock out insurrectionists like Trump. Then he also would not have been able to rise. That's I, I totally agree, and I think that like the tension you're identifying in the book, which is just some sort of ambivalence about the need for institutional resilience and 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 even sort of competent elites versus a belief in you know a real commitment to small d democracy. Like those are intention, and I agree that the process that brought us to this point represents failures in both directions. Right, so you know people voted for who they voted for. 
it's also the case that, as you say, that it was only allowed to happen or could have happened in this particular setting. But then there's also the fact that, I mean, to zoom out for a second, right? It, it is also the case that at a fundamental level, if a democracy is not producing material benefits to large swaths or majorities of the population, like the population is going to go a little crazy. Now, there's a bazillion different complicating factors, right? There's but, but here, I want to yeah. push one major complicating yeah. factor, which is that if you had taken that materialist hypothesis mm -hmm. and you had simply applied it to the to the United States in the year of 2016, you would not have predicted the outcome we got. I, I, th I think that's not quite true. And here's why. Yeah. I think this has to do with the presidential system that literally gives votes to land. Yes, that is and, clearly true. And geography. And the geographic nature of the American economy and concentration. That I agree with. And but so, I think that's a very – that is a very – I would just say I think that is a much more specific argument. Yes, totally. Than the broad – because I do think that there's become yeah. a, a popular – it is the thing that everybody will clap if you say the problem is just median income stagnation. Mm. But 2015 was one of the highest right. jumps in median income no. on record. Now, not for everybody, right? We do have this concentration issue. But I think that – because it is um, not in the way we use the term now, but I think in, in a more original way, the term it's like politically correct mm -hmm. to just say everybody's pissed off because their, their, their income is bad. It saves you from talking about race. It saves you from talking about resentment. It saves you from talking about anger of more dangerous kinds. And so it's become, I think, a, a little bit of a, a crutch when, you know, we had unemployment under 5 percent. We had medium incomes right. going up. We had the lowest level of uninsured basic business we've been keeping records. You just would not have looked at that from afar right. and said, here's a year when the American political system right. is going to convulse. Right. That's true. Although, again, to come back to this sort of what – because I think that in some ways what we learned was how deceptive the macro analysis was in this respect, right, which is that Tom Perriello had a statistic and I'm not going to remember it off the top of my head. But when I interviewed him, he compared – it was the percentage of counties that saw job growth in the late 90s Clinton recovery versus the percentage of counties that saw job growth in the Obama recovery. Mm -hmm. And it was a shocking number where it was just much more geographically broad-based in the Clinton years than in the Obama years. And so because of this bizarre concentration of that economic activity, all the macro numbers, in a, in a weird way, it's like a parallel to the – popular vote versus electoral college, which is like Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote by about the amount that the polls predicted, right? <laughs> and like – yeah, and the, and the economy – It's amazing. The polls were less off in 2016 nationally than in 2012. Exactly. People, and, I think, this is a really hard thing to and when you look at And when you look at the flip side, right, of this sort of inequality, stagnating median income story – my favorite example of the flip side is Harris County, which is the county of Houston, that Barack Obama won by about 900 votes and Hillary Clinton won by 100,000 votes. Now, what's going on in Houston? Well, Houston's doing pretty well. Like, like Houston is a growing place. All of the macroeconomic indicators you're citing, those are really happening and in Houston's that place. And very heavily Hispanic. Right. Exactly. Yes. And again, there's a relationship between those two things, which mm -hmm. gets to kind of the nub of the issue. Elites have become a term a little bit like clickbait. Totally. It means people I don't like. Yes. There, there is certainly a version of elite that includes conceptually at least billionaire yeah. Manhattan real estate developer who has television shows, Donald Trump. Yes. Instead of him being the, the tribune of, of anti-elitism. And another way of thinking about the election, which is that the traditional – people get anxious here and so I want to try to be careful with my language. 
but the traditional racial power structure and the traditional age power structure in this country combined with its more empowered geographic and political distribution took back power. That the idea that the defeat of the rising majority-minority coalition led by women and African-Americans and Hispanics by rural and suburban whites, that it is being framed as this destruction of elites, that feels to me like a pretty good marketing job on some level. Yeah, I do. I think that's right. And I think it's a marketing job and also has some – And has truth has in it truth too. I don't want to – Yeah, I yeah no. I mean – well, let's just talk about the term for a second. I mean, there's in, in the book, I actually take some time with this. In fact, I even say that back then, five years ago, that this term has been stretched past the point of meaning, right? So partly because it's been a term forever, particularly in, in right-wing populism, in both global right-wing populism and American right-wing populism. The problem with the way the term gets deployed is A, clickbait, right? Or fake news or anything I don't like, oh, right? Fake news, man. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about the scholarly dissertations on fake news are going to be amazing. <laughs> the overdeployment of it. Um, so there's that problem. The other is that it's such a relative term, right? Like Gary Cohn, who's you know in the administration and a Goldman banker, is unquestionably an elite, right? Ezra Klein, who runs Vox, Chris Hayes was a, a cable news show, elites, unquestionably elites, right? Unquestionably, but. But then there's also a lot of differences and distinctions between Gary Cohn and us. <laughs> like, like that that dude rolls at a level of power and influence, and you know, and then and then you could walk down, then you could say, a tenured professor at Amherst College, also an elite, right? So, so the, part of the problem with defining this term, right, is when you're talking about someone who has relative power and advantage in a society, there's a necessary relativity to it. Right. And so you can kind of slice the cake where you want it. So in some senses, it's true that like an urban professional with a college degree working in media in New York and living in Crown Heights and not making much money is an elite. Mm -hmm. Like that is not a representative experience of America. Then the question becomes like, is a government employee at the Department Environmental Protection Agency, like a bureaucrat who has a science degree, an elite? Well, now you're getting into this territory where it's like at one level they have more relative education than than most of the society. But like I don't think we want to include them in that term. But one thing that I think is is important here and, and, and I think it's what makes this conversation so difficult because there is truth on all sides of it. Yeah. And genuine genuine hurt on all sides of it simultaneously. Absolutely. Like real hurt. And and I really uh, – one – a big part of what I want to talk about with you and Colony and a Nation is around the ideas of hurt and humiliation. But you in, in elites have – in Twilight of the Elites have this term fractal inequality where you talk about equality that no matter where you are, you know, the 1 percent feels middle class because they see the top 0.1 percent. Elitism has a different kind of fractal nature, which is that it takes place across many dimensions. There's cultural elites. There are moneyed elites. This I think speaks to Donald Trump. In totally. some very Absolutely. fundamental way, Donald Trump is a moneyed elite but has never felt like a – Culturally. Cultural educated. And in fact, that is foundational to who he is. He, I mean, McKay Coppins, you know, I think wrote this piece. I think it's McKay about the sort of like everything you need to understand about him is a kid from Queens who wanted to get to Manhattan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Which like it's like he, the chip on that guy's shoulder about like about that, about I'm not being let in by those people is 
a thousand percent authentic. Like he really feels it, I think, in his bones and a huge part of why he was able to be the vessel for this. And and what seems to me to have happened a little bit with the conversation around elites is it has become about elites has come to mean something urban, something very fundamentally urban and educated more than it has come. To and also, signify. yeah. And also like adjacent to non-white <laughs> in certain ways. Oh, that's interesting. Explain that. I think that there's I think one of the ways that elites has been used has been developed in certain kind of right wing discourse is like urban, cosmopolitan, Jewish, black or Latino adjacent, like in the, like there's a certain racialized quality of a certain kind of conception of elites, I, like the, the, the place just to, just yeah, to make this please. point, the place that felt the most acute was the. Trump ad with like, you know, Lloyd Blankfein and Yellen and like it was like, OK, we're now we're now walking. We're walking pretty close to like uh, elites air quotes. I think, though, <laughs> that it might. I think that I, I take that point fully. One thing that I think is true in this conversation to try to to try to frame that viewpoint in a, in a generous way is that it actually it's going the other way in its polarity. The, the thing that. I detect in a lot of conservative writing about elites that is related to the non-white mm -hmm. dimension is elite is defined as someone who would feel condescending towards a downscale rural white right. who has somewhat retrograde opinions on race. Yes, right. And so elite in this way, it it, it is applied yeah, to the it. rising non-white coalition, but the defining – attribute that, that people I think legitimately feel about not just them, but let's say, let's put it differently about me, say, right? The kinds of elites who you, totally. you and I are is that if you have a Southern accent and um, are maybe not comfortable with gay marriage or transgendered, right. Right. transgendered rights, right. that we would look down on you right. and that, that is the definition of lead. And it relates to the rising non-white coalition, but it's not exactly this. It's I, I not think, exactly based. On I think it. that's actually a really important point because I think one of the things that has happened in exactly this way is that issues of social justice have been understood by large parts of the populace as essentially elite manners. Right. So it's like – and everyone which hates – sometimes they have that which, dimension. Not wrongly <laughs> in some ways, right? Like those two things are bound together. So if you watch a farce – and it's the person at the dinner party who doesn't know which fork to use. Like that's the person you root for. And in our politics, a huge part of the population has understood what I think are genuine, you know, what are genuine struggles for social justice and equality as essentially elite manners. Michelle Goldberg makes this great point. And, and it was my experience as well. She's like, a lot of people told me about political correctness and almost no one told me about NAFTA when I, when I, when I would go to rallies. Like, it was the the violations of the taboos that people liked, at least the hardcore supporters who came to the rallies, more than it was like trade. And it's like it, – because it was like the – at some level, their understanding of it, it was the person at the dinner party with everyone with their fine china and their nine different kind of forks just like drinking the, the soup out of the bowl. And it was like, that's my dude. And, and, and precisely for the reasons you identify, precisely because there's been this way in which – the kind of cosmopolitan elites, the guardians of culture, the people that cluster these urban centers have a set of social values and sort of social taboos that I think are informed by genuine commitments towards justice, but also have this sort of aspect of elite manners and that are understood by huge parts of society as elite manners. So I, I, had this, I was going to get to this later, but actually I want to bring in Colony Nation here. 
like Twilight of the Elites, I think this book is going to prove more prescient than maybe you expected when when you got into it. And and I want to pluck two things that you really emphasize. One is the order side of law and order, that the power of law and order politics isn't about law. It's about the yearning for order. And order can mean very specific things to very specific people. But the other thing, and, and, and you are using it not in this way in the book, but I think it's one thing that is really interesting when you read it from that perspective, is the power of humiliation as a motivating force in, in human affairs. And the humiliation you're talking about in the book is the humiliation of someone in Ferguson who is continuously stopped by police for nothing and in front of their children or in front of their friends, put down on a curb or put down on the hood of their car and searched. They're out on a date and all of a sudden the whole thing, it, your, your skin crawls. But you have a, a really great set of lines in there about, about the power of humiliation as opposed to other things because when you're being humiliated, you don't feel that you can speak back and the way that burns in you. And one thing that was a little chilling when I read the book was how much that spoke also to the articulated experience of Trump voters, this feeling that the kinds of liberal elites we're talking about here have captured the culture and they had captured the White House. And all of a sudden, they weren't even allowed to hold their opinions. They, they weren't allowed to speak them aloud because they would be drummed out of polite company. And the idea of humiliation is a motivating factor for Donald Trump himself in his life. Fuck these people. Yeah. I'm going to show them. And then to your point, then is a tribune for folks who also did not feel able to, uh, to speak out against uh, um, a, a, a cultural consensus they 100%. had not built and felt stultified by feels like a, a powerful piece of this. Yeah. It's funny that you there, – there was a much longer section of the book about humiliation because I, I, I got really obsessed with this idea. I think it's a really underappreciated and under-interrogated experience. Part of the reason I found my way to it was reading about the founders who they felt humiliated by the crown, right? Like we think about the revolution in these kind of like airy philosophical terms, self-representation, democracy, you know, no like no taxation without representation. But on the front lines when there's like a mob beating up a customs official <laughs> – they're doing that because they feel humili like they feel humiliated by the crown. And there was a long section of the book about the Arab Spring and how Mohammed Bosazi, who was the fruit vendor in Tunisia, who lit himself on fire. The reason he lit himself on fire is there was a cop that would come every day and harass him about the fruit he was selling without a license. And it was a woman cop, which I think was part of the humiliation. And he went to the government office to complain about this cop and they said, get out of here. And he went home and he you know, lit himself on fire. And that humiliation, it turned out, was felt across the entire region. It erupted in revolution country to country to country because, like you said, that, that emotion is so dangerous because it cannot go anywhere by definition. Rage is explosive. Sadness sort of comes out of us in certain ways. Humiliation just has to be bottled up because the powerful don't let you actually express yourself. And I think... It could be dangerous in all kinds of different ways, right? Like it can lead to incredible justice and coal miners being humiliated leading to, you know, organizing for their rights or it could lead to this kind of backlash politics. And you have in the book these extraordinary stories from, from Ferguson. I think it would be good to just set the stage here because there is a lot of empathy that needs to go around here. But there's a very particular kind of thing um, that has happened, probably since Trump won, where – 
an almost overshadowing level of empathy has to happen for people who actually are in power at the moment, right? Who are right. banning people from coming to the country and right. trying to pass a healthcare bill that'll kick 24 million people off of insurance, whatever it might be. And and somehow those feelings are very real. I, I don't want to take away from that. And what's behind them can be real, but but you don't also want to miss what is what was happening on the other side. And and one thing that I think was such a toxic part of 2016 is there was a trading of humiliations. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think Black Lives Matter was a not insignificant part of the election. I agree. I think that the activation of whites is to vote more like an interest group yep. um, as they saw the culture changing very fast around them and not the hope and change of Barack Obama. But you have some reparations to make like you you, sh- you need to check your privilege, that kind of thing, the kind of thing that made you feel bad about yourself. Did it make you feel like you were participating in a great moment of change and you'd right. be remembered as a hero, but that you were being held to account for even things maybe you didn't believe you had done. And that trading of humiliation from the Ferguson protests and and and, and subsequent protests that then has a very different expression in Trump rallies. I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the experience at Ferguson where you talk about being there and having just every time you hand the mic over to someone what you get is a story of humiliation. Yeah, it was it was it was kind of incredible and I, you know, at one level, right, you could probably do this in any city or town in America, but so so there's a sort of universality to it, but there's also something specific about that department. I mean, that <laughs> as the patterns and practices report shows, like there is a specific set of pathologies and injustices embedded in that department. And you know, state senator uh told me a story of hopping in a like as a kid, as a 12-year-old hopping in a fire truck or a 15-year-old hopping in a fire truck when a fireman told her to get into it and a cop coming up and drawing his gun on her. Like, just think about that. Like, is there any more pure moment of, like, civic citizen relations than the fireman <laughs> telling you you can hop in the fire truck and to have that end in a police officer drawing their weapon? Like, everyone up and down the sort of social hierarchy among black folks there from people that had been in a prison to elected representatives, et cetera, had story after story. The thing that struck me is they just living, looking over their shoulder. Like, and, and I can imagine people listening to this right now being like, yeah, no, duh, dude. <laughs> well, I'm curious about and this. There, and there is, and there's some of that, but I, but I also think that for whatever reason, the, the, here, here's what I think struck me so much about Ferguson. I think because I grew up in New York City, I just associated those things with the city. And I lived in Chicago and I lived in Washington, D.C. And I know urban areas and I've done reporting in urban areas and all those things. It was the it was the fact that here I was in this like town. I mean, it's not rural. It's a, a suburb of St. Louis. But this place that was not recognizably urban in the way that I thought this small municipality, that all that stuff was there and even more acute just blew my mind because it sort of was like, oh, right, this is everywhere. Well, we we are two white guys discussing this in a way that right. makes me uncomfortable right. as we're doing it. <laughs> Did you feel that discomfort writing the book? Did you feel a, you know, does the world need yes. cable news host white guy writing a book about race right. relations and police? Yes. I mean, I think I had resistance in the beginning to writing it for that reason. And I think I even said to someone like, there's just no reason to write a book about like, you know, white guy explains Black Lives Matter. Like that's just not – there's tons of incredible writers, authors writing about that who have a life experience perspective I don't have. 
what pushed me to write the book actually was the other side of the equation. Like the project of the book is not is less about what does it feel like to be on the wrong side of it. It's like why did we white people make this? <laughs> and that was the thing that I felt like I had distinct insight into. Like I lived through – I grew up in New York City in the peak crime years and I lived through the call and response of a certain kind of order and law and order politics and, and politics of white fear. And the project of the book is to get people to think about he, how we as a democratic society created the system we have. And that was something that I felt like I, I genuinely could contribute something novel and fresh and, 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 and important to this, this sort of unfolding conversation. Well, th there's some interesting first person in the book and, and the parts of it that I found most powerful were you tell a couple stories really at the beginning and at the end of the book of an interaction that I think would strike many of your readers as completely normal. You hear a dispute, some kind of dispute on the street, a man and a woman screaming at each other. And you think that sounds like it might go bad. And you call the police. You call the police based on your experience with the police, which is that they come and they restore order and they're reasonably sympathetic. You have a very funny story about being caught at the RNC with weed in your bag and the police being like, go on, young man, go, go, go have fun. And the same thing that happened to you in college. Whereas, you know, for other folks, the police are not as benign and that that call you made might end in a very different place for them. It's a, it, it had not occurred to me the question of when do you call or not call the police? which again is a product of my life experience, which I 100% recognize. But the reporting of the book made me really think about it. And I mean, there's this horrible story in Chicago where, you know, sometimes people call the police and in that case, you know, on a, a, a son who is mentally ill and he ends up getting shot. So the thing about calling the police in the context of the system we have is that why do you call the police? You call the police not because the law is being broken, but because order is threatened. And it's it is such an, a remarkable fact about policing, to take the other perspective for a second, that so much of what you do as a cop is just walk into situations of chaos and disorder as opposed to like law and order, dun dun. <laughs> right? Like it's like there, there's some it's like we have the idea that like, oh, it's like someone just pulled off a heist or they just robbed something and the cop shows up to like take the incident report and figure out who did it. But a lot of what it is is like you show up in a driveway where like two people are screaming at each other. There's no law being broken. Like those two people are yelling at each other. That's legal. But someone called the cops because like this may go sideways. And then it's like this person accused the other person of stealing their car without taking their car without them letting them. He then accused the other person of Stealing something else. And now that suddenly you are in the middle of mediating a dispute and you're a 25 year old <laughs> standing there. And this is a situation. This is time and time and time again. I mean, the way that we enforce order is by calling the police. And a huge part of what they have to do is essentially like mediate street disputes, mediate familiar disputes, mediate disputes between between lovers. It is a striking aspect of policing. And what it also means is. We are sending a person with a gun who is trained to defend themselves with that gun to do a kind of work that really only tangentially connects to criminality, <laughs> right? So 
Yes, that I think is right. There is a way, though, in which this part of the book has a fascinating tension with Twilight of the Elites. And I want to read a passage that, yep. that I've been thinking about a lot, where one thing that you do throughout the book is you, again, you, I think you show how a lot of the incarceral state we've built is built upon a lot of decisions that are not just rational, but are even in, in the minds of the person making them compassionate, not even cruel, uh, you know, at, at the moment they're made. And then they, they sort of convert into something else for people. But one thing you talk about is the way the crowd, the, the non-elites, right, the small d democracy, yeah. has a very different attitude towards punishment than sometimes even the state does. And you write – Bloodlust from the crowd is a common trait. Every country on earth has experienced some form of it. In a democracy, the politics of crime present the possibility of vigilantism by other means. Imagine referendum Pontius Pilate style for every person convicted of, say, child molestation. How many would vote for death? We insulate criminal procedure from direct democracy precisely because of the corrupting force of the will of the people. We don't give child molesters death sentences. But that's not because such a sentence wouldn't meet under the right conditions with majority approval. I'm curious how you think about that tension. I'm so glad that uh, it's so funny you put your finger on that because I actually do think that's the, the two books, Twilight of the Elites and this book are in conversation with each other on precisely this point. Because one of the central arguments of the book and the central things it wrestles with is there's no special interest to pin this on when you talk about what we built in criminal justice. There's no bank lobby, right? It's not the health insurance companies. We built this. There was democratic popular traction with this set of policies. There are interest groups, police unions, prison guard unions, upstate towns that employ lots of people in prisons, private prison industries that make it hard to dismantle. Absolutely. But it wasn't built by special interest groups. It was built through the call and response of leaders in the crowd. It was built through small d democracy. People really did vote <laughs> for this. Now, the way that got transmuted is a complicated story and whose vote mattered and whose voice mattered, particularly along racial lines, is a really complicated story. I talk about that a bit in the book. But by and large, this is a phenomenon of democratic will. And part of the importance of the book to me is saying to people like you as a citizen do have power here. You and I, we made this. We can unmake it. But we have to recognize that we made it, right? Like – you're going to vote at some point, if you vote, for your local prosecutor. What do they do? Are they a good prosecutor? Are they a bad prosecutor? Are they committed to unmaking the system? There was an amazing moment at the event last night. <laughs> I did a book event with Jamel Bowie. I was talking about the opioid epidemic and this idea that there's more empathy, you know, in the rhetoric towards addicts uh, in these sort of large swaths of, of white America largely – but that I wasn't yet convinced that was going to transfer into more empathetic policy because the sort of impulse towards wrath is so strong. <laughs> and pe people, you know, listened to that. And then at some point someone got up who had a, an amazing sort of set of questions. But one of the things she said was sort of as an aside that the drug companies that ship those pain pills to this town in West Virginia, 9 million pills into this town of 400, they should all be in jail. And it's like, right, yes, that's the impulse. That is the impulse. The impulse is punish. 
And it's not it's not like a crazy impulse or wrong or even unjust in this circumstance. Like I do think the drug companies in this <laughs> instance committed probably criminal felonies. But the crowd, like we want to see people punished. It is it is a sort of and it's it's particular to America in some ways, but it's also just broadly true. And other systems, I mean, Europe thinks it is bananas that we elect prosecutors. <laughs> Like, you elect prosecutors? Like, that is not a function that you should be putting in the hands of, of, of you know. And I, I think I've sort of come to think they probably have that right. Oh, it seems 100 <laughs> I mean, I, I don't even know what would be the, the question there. But actually, this is a good pullback to politics here because I want to keep on, on, on this tension with the trial of the elites. So if you think of where we were politically in 2015, 2016 – we were in this sort of interesting moment where elites, political elites from both parties were beginning to converge around criminal justice reform in a pretty profound way. And this was built, I think, on the back of some of these elite opinions we were talking about. Obviously, non-elites hold yep, these opinions yep. too. But you had Mike Lee, the conservative senator from Utah. You had Dick Durbin, the liberal senator from Illinois, you had Cory Booker, you you had a very fascinating coalition beginning to emerge of very conservative Republicans, very liberal Democrats coming together on something pretty big. And this was all happening in the context of Black Lives Matter too, right? I mean, and there's even interesting things like after Ferguson, Rand Paul came out, made very interesting points about why are we shipping all this military hardware to to local police um, stations. I don't think it is an accident that in a in that moment what you have is the return of a very old fashioned i don't even want quite want it. like law and order is almost too denatured a term for what trump is like right. I, I think people right. always it is always very vengeance central to me vengeance is a very powerful term <laughs> yeah, for yeah. punishment yeah trump lives on an ethos of punishing those who wrong him and also one of his very first acts in public life is buying this full-page ad in the New York Times calling for the execution of the Central Park Five who were later exonerated for their crimes, something he will not apologize for today. Not even just not apologize, will not admit they were not guilty. So <laughs> it's within this context, I think, that there that this is where the real tension to me lies. That, And, and I'm not trying to argue for one thing or another. Right. I, I just – I find this difficult. I just right. find this challenging and I'm interested to your, for your reflections on it because it – seems to me that there was an elite-driven part of the system that was looking at this and was trying to move away from punishment. And there was a more small-D democratic part of the system that looked at that, heard that, saw that, right. and went very sharply in the other direction. I think there's I think there's an element of truth that I think it's I, I would say the story is a little more complicated just because if you look at sort of political leadership as a whole, it's still incredibly pro-punishment, right? So, so like that, these sort of rumblings that were happening where it was sort of like right on crime, left-right coalition, Cato was partnering with ACLU, et cetera, like that was an actual genuine phenomenon, but not necessarily broadly representative, right? Although the president of the United States agreed with this. No, the president did, but I'm the saying- Attorney General. I'm saying among like conservatives, I think that that was not necessarily, even among conservative elites, I don't think that was a, that had sort of reached majority status in some way. I think, so, that's, I think that's right. Right, so- so there's that part of it. I also think like really what I think we're, we keep coming back to, which I actually think is like a real deep, profound point of tension, dispute and argumentation in the wake of the election, particularly between different factions of the Democratic Party or the or broadly the center left is 
how much do voters have views and how much are they formed? Like how much is this a thing that is out there that's external and how much can it be formed through organizing, right? Like the kind of left labor perspective is that like there's no just like people believe X or people want Y. It's all formed through the push and pull of organizing people, right? There's all these different inputs, whether it's media, you know, elite signaling, organizing, that you you form the kind of – you make the public that you want to make a better world. You form a vision. There's just no like lump there. It's like the people want punishment as some sort of external factor. The people want punishment, this argument goes, because their leaders have told them to, because they have been propagandized, manipulated, talked to, organized in certain ways, right, structured in certain ways. And if you want a public that doesn't want punishment, then you need to organize in other ways. And I think there's a, a lot to that. Like that view, right? The, like the, the, that 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 would push back against this idea of like, you know, the elites were thinking about criminal justice reform and, and the public sort of there was backlash. I think there really is something to this idea that like people's politics are really <laughs> like tangled, ambiguous, formable, shifting in different ways. At the same time, I also take seriously your view. And I think the place that really played is in immigration, in some ways much more than crime. That's where you really see the division, right? But like, I will say one reason that's true. Trump unusually reframed immigration as an issue of crime, absolute, not of economy. 100 percent. Which is a difference from recent And, and, and literally took the New York City crime playbook of the Giuliani years and applied it to immigration. <laughs> the wall is like the biggest like broken windows project ever. The, the way he talks about the border is the way – People in New York would talk about graffiti on the subway. It's this sign that things are in decline and being overrun and we need to like clean it up, right? In that sense, like there are these divisions and I do think like you have to be unblinking about a certain segment of the population. But the other thing I would say, a certain segment of the population that wants punishment or wants wrath or wants vengeance or wants a wall. Like, but the other thing I would say about that is that that still is not a majority of the population. Right. The hardcore people that really heard that siren call, I still think is like a 30 percent chunk of the population. So uh, so I'll be honest. I don't know what my view is here. Yeah. Something you're hearing in in my side of the discussion is I am struggling with another book I just read. And, and I don't know if you've read it. And if you haven't, I'd, I'd love for you to. And then you can come back right. and we can talk about it. Um, Democracy for Realists by no. Larry Bartels and Christopher yeah. Aitchens, Aikens. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, they're two political scientists and Bartels in particular is I think one of the most interesting and, and methodologically rigorous political scientists out there. I followed his work for a very long time. This book is a thoroughgoing, just a thoroughgoing and in my view almost unanswerable demolition of the foundational reasons you would traditionally believe in democracy. <laughs> I mean it is – just searing. And it's not fun. Right. I don't enjoy it. Right. I don't I, – I'm, right. I'm struggling with it. You're, again, you're hearing me struggle with it. But basically what they do is this book is separated into three sections. And the first section is basically they look at the evidence for what we might call like the rational agent democracy. Right. The idea of democracy where people act based on knowledge about what's going on. Right. And they just show that there's not a, a prayer of holding to that view. 
people, like all of us, right. just we're busy. Right. Nobody knows anything. Right. The idea that we simultaneously are going to have opinions on whether the Iran nuclear deal right. is a good idea and what should happen with the EPA regulations. Right. And, and just when you ask people the most basic things and you just change the wording very slightly, people have no idea. Yeah. People constantly are wrong about what the candidates they support believe. Yep. It's a big thing with Donald Trump, but it's yep. with true with everybody. So there is, uh, I think, reading this, you, you just cannot hold to the view that what is happening in democracy is uh, people are working off of the basis of pretty good information. OK, fine. People have not really held that view, at least in political science world, for a long time. They've been working off of a, a secondary view, which we might call like democracy a shortcut. And that view holds that voters are using – voters may not have all this information, but they're using a series of quite sophisticated and effective shortcuts to come to more or less the same positions they would have if they had gotten all the information. So they're looking at the state of the economy, saying is the economy doing well or poorly? They're looking at are we in a war that is going badly? Right. They're connected to a party that represents their values. Um, and so they have all these heuristics right. that give them a shortcut through this informational morass. And I think Bartel and Aikens – again, show pretty persuasively that while that is going on, it is not an effective system. For instance, the way the economy affects elections is it really only seems to matter how the economy is doing in the last eight months of, of a term. And that's just not how you would judge economic performance. Or they, they show, again, very, very powerfully that drought is just fucking devastating to whoever is in power. Because people people are not rationally blaming them for drought, but they're blaming them for, for the conditions created by right, drought. Right. And that there's no evidence that, you know, half of the folks who govern during a period of drought are getting a boost because people think they did a better than average job responding to drought. So it's very, very hard to hold to that. So they end up in this place, which is they are arguing for a group identity theory of democracy. And the group identity theory of democracy basically holds that the fundamental way we participate in politics is a way of establishing group identities. And this is now, I think, saying more than they say, but it's where I've been going with this theory, which is that we all have a lot of identities that are vying at any given moment, right? I am a journalist and I am Jewish and I am from California and I live in Washington, D.C. and I like writing and I enjoy comic books and I feel very positively towards immigrants and I care about healthcare right. and I'm sort of a technocrat and like you can go down this list. And to your point about there being these two conflicting theories about our beliefs formed or are they pre-existing, I would say this exists in a different space, which is that I think they would say that the competition of an election, or at least I would say having read the book, the competition of election may not really be about persuasion. And this is something about Trump. I don't think he is persuasive. Kellyanne Conway is not trying to persuade. He activates certain identities. And he activates certain yes. emotions. Yes. And the question of what you believe actually has a lot to do with are you feeling afraid right then? That's, I think, a, a lesson from New York in the and, 90s. Right. And who are your people? And who are your people? And so one interesting thing about all this, it's people keep saying that this election could have been about race because Obama won the last election. But Obama and Romney very consciously did not activate yeah. racial identities. Yeah. They did not say we are here having a clash right. between a majority-minority uh, rising power right. structure and the traditional yes. white power structure. They were like, are you a worker or are you capital? Right. Clinton and Trump, Black Lives Matter, million other things going on. We're, we're activating a lot of racial identities, a lot of nationalist identities. And the beliefs and intuitions associated with those identities are different than the ones associated with other more traditional I, yes. political identities. So there was a point in the 
there was a point in the campaign where I started to feel exactly this way, which was I thought about the way that we would cover Iraqi politics in the nascent Iraqi state post Saddam. And basically the way that we would cover them from abroad was we would say there's a Kurdish party, there's a Sunni party, and there's a Shia party, and they're vying for supremacy. Now, if you were in Iraq, there was all sorts of policy debates about, but we weren't like, well, they are having a grand debate about the proper role of government and how large it should be. It was just like, no, like there's a fixed pie that these three groups are worrying over and their political parties are just the means by which they're doing that. And I had a thought that like, if you covered American politics with enough perspective, it would look a lot like that. Like it would look like this sort of battle between these sort of different group identity tribal affiliations. And the sort of great discovery of Donald Trump was like to lean into that. And I do think it is the case that that a lot of democracy is that. The one thing I would say in response to the that thesis is all of that to me just illustrates and nothing illustrates it more than the moment we're in the importance of broadly civil society, mm -hmm. which is that like, right. So general masses of people can, you know, have competing identities at any time. They have heuristics and shortcuts that don't necessarily work very well. But small, intensely organized groups of people, genuinely committed, can have in that environment tremendous influence. And that's why civil society matters so much. It's why organizing matters. It's why social movements matter so much precisely because of that reason, precisely because people are making these judgments on extremely attenuated versions and because there's competition for how they're going to define themselves against these competing identities, that it's the people that move into the space and give people an identity to have. I mean, that to me is that that comes back to this idea of like, right, that's why things like, say, labor organizing have been so powerful, right? Because it gives people an identity. It's like, okay, I'm going to draw the line of which identity or group you're affiliated with being these people in this circle, right? <laughs> Against those people, the bosses, <laughs> as opposed to allowing someone else to come and draw the line and saying, you are the good white people. <laughs> and that these people are the immigrants who are taking your jobs, right? And I think in some ways, it, it, it almost reinforces the power of that analysis precisely because how unfixed all this stuff, how how sort of irrational and emotional and visceral and sort of brainstemmy it all is that like it is kind of up for grabs to the to to the forces of civil society to form that in the best possible way. One thing that I think is a difficult thing to discuss a bit is that something political establishments do. And I think this is the particular fracture Trump exposed is they engage in conspiracies of identity suppression. The Republican and Democratic parties for decades in this country have basically worked together to suppress a political identity that is very common in other countries that have multi-party democracies, which is a nationalist, yeah. arguably xenophobic, socially traditionalist economically populist identity, yep. which is popular. And you have seen yeah. efforts for it to emerge here. Perot was an effort for it to emerge here. Buchanan was an right. effort for it to emerge here. And then under Trump, once the primary systems had sufficiently weakened, but the partisanship system was strong enough to ensure that whoever got through the primary would still yep. retain the party, Trump could expose that identity. Now, to the degree to which he is or is not holding to it in office, that's a, that's a, different, that's a different argument. 
But that was, to me, what was interesting about reading um, A Colony in a Nation versus Twilight of the Elites. I think one thing you would say about Twilight of the Elites was that it was pretty alive to the downsides of this kind of identity suppression and certain kinds of identity affirmation, right? You talk about the ways in which elites tell themselves and each other a myth of meritocracy, right? They they are constantly pushing an, an identity of, right. you know, if you're doing well, it's because you have- you Including know, Mitt Romney at the including debates. Including Mitt Romney at the debates, <laughs> exactly. And that stuff can be very damaging in a lot of different ways. And then Colony Nation, it also has this other dimension where I think it is quietly a little afraid of what happens if the cap comes off? Mm. What happens if the different ways in which the public's desire for order and the public's desire for punishment when that order is violated begin to weaken? Something that I thought was a really interesting part of the book was towards the end, you talk about Brock Turner. And Brock Turner was, what was the school, Stanford? Stanford swimming, yeah. He's a Stanford kid who sexually assaulted a woman. And at his sentencing, you know, it was just all about what a great swimmer he is and how much potential he has. And he got a very, very light sentence. And then there was a massive public naming and shaming campaign against him. And and we wrote about this at Vox. And, you know, I mean, it was everywhere and it was a big deal. And you talk about, you know, I think that a lot of people felt justice is being served here. And you talk about and you talk about somebody who, who's involved in these issues feeling like, is this the best we can do? Is the way we're going to deal with the fact that practically non-whites are treated in the justice system yeah. like they are evil, like they are one-dimensional, that we're just going to start doing it to everybody? Right. We're going to level down because like that is what is fundamentally in us? The, the quote comes from this prison abolition activist named Marion Kaba who goes by Prison Culture on Twitter who I would recommend folks follow. I think she's really a pretty incredible person. And she had this tweet storm. She goes, I just spent all day in court watching black folks particularly young black men, be just run through this system with white judges dispensing what she said was white justice. And I come back to the Twitter line that we're circulating this mugshot as if that has anything to do with breaking up the system that I just saw today. And it was just so powerful to me, right? Because like there is some sense that justice demands equality. Like if the system is going to treat just huge swaths of black and brown people like their life has no meaning, like they don't have some bright future ahead of them that can't be redeemed, then the only way to equalize it all is to is to apply that more broadly. And we should say in this in the case of this kid, like there were a lot of reasons to be outraged about this. Like just I want to be very clear, like the facts of the case were outrageous. What he did was vile and outrageous. His total lack of remorse was vile and outrageous. The victim's statement was incredibly powerful. Yes. And for all those reasons, like that impulse was I 100% felt it and understood it. But I am skeptical of that impulse as a path towards anything except more rune. And there's there's a more recent case, the two white folks that rolled up to a birthday party of a black kid and shouted racial threats. I forget what state it was in. And they got the, as they should have been. Um, and I mean like really gnarly like death threats, like horrible, horrible thing they did. They got arrested. They got tried and they got convicted and they got like – I want to say like eight years. And I saw – it was a really interesting thing that happened, which is that the criminal justice reform advocates that I follow on Twitter and that I read being like, this is not cool. And people being like, what the hell are you talking about? It's not cool. Like, yes, that's what these people deserve. 
and the folks that work in the system every day who cover the system are like, no, eight years for this is too much. And like, it is so hard. That impulse, like that desire for punishment is so powerful and so strong and undoing that in a sort of collective social way, even for the people that we view as our enemies in some deep sense, even people who did truly vile things. I mean, let's be clear. One of the things I, I think that a story we tell ourselves about mass incarceration is like, we just have so many nonviolent drug offenders and we just let them all out. It's like, you can let out every nonviolent drug offender in America, it would still be the most incarcerated country on earth. There's a lot of people in jail, in prison, who did like really bad stuff. And at a certain point, it's like the real tough stuff gets to like, how long for a rapist? And are you willing to invest in a rapist having a new life and being redeemed? And coming back out into society in a real way and extend some sort of sense of social forgiveness or someone that beat the crap out of someone or someone that did extremely vile or despicable and violent things like that's where like it gets real rough. <laughs> and that's where the manipulation of demagogues is so easy. Is so easy to come in and be the candidate or the person or the leader who says like you're letting out that rapist. What the hell is wrong with you? I, I want to focus for another minute because I don't know that we hit it as hard as I think we should. Is this idea of leveling down? This idea of uh, I wish I brought the quote you have, but equality through punishment—that the way we'll be a more equal society isn't more compassion to those who have done wrong, right. but less compassion to the more privileged. Who That's have done exactly wrong. right. And there's there's a whole book by by this uh, legal historian James Whitman called Harsh Justice. That makes an argument about the comparative systems between Europe and America on precisely this grounds so that like we, we level down, whereas they leveled up. And a, a term that's come up a couple of times here that feels important, feels important on the economic side, feels important on the justice side, and I think just is, is important in human life is zero sumness. This idea that in anything there is a, a fixed pie, a fixed number of jobs, a fixed amount of income, and to some degree a fixed amount of justice. And that for one group to win a little bit more, another group has to lose a little bit more. And I think the one thing Trump is more effective at than anything else is – I don't even know if it's recognizing because I don't think that he's – my wife has this great line about Barack Obama that he exists within his own meta narrative. He's postmodern. Like he sees himself from the outside. Right, yes. Trump does not. Trump is the inside. Op literally yeah, the opposite. The opposite. Yeah. But – because of that, one thing that's authentic to Trump is that he – it is a continuous, difficult intellectual effort, I find, to convince yourself of non-zero-sumness in human affairs. I totally agree. Like every single day, you have to be like, I don't really understand how it is that the economy makes more jobs, but it does. Like this is how it has worked. I know the evidence. Like I'm going to go with that. And Trump speaks from a fundamentally transactional zero-sum place and it's very powerful because is how people – he is the most – the only belief I feel like he has, the, 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 the deepest core of his worldview is this incredible belief in zero-sumness in every domain at all times. Every single interaction is a pie that's going to be cut between him and someone else and he's going to win or lose. He's going he's gonna to fuck them or they're going to fuck him and like – it is unbelievable how he applies that to everything and how appealing it is to think in those terms, partly because in some in some cases it's true, right? Like in a contract negotiation, 
Like, but he, no, not even in a contract. I just want to right. push that. Right. You right. and I both had a lot of right. contract right. negotiations and it can feel that way, but it's not. It, it often isn't true. Right. Although there is a there is a situation like you. Uh, there are settings in which it is true. Yes. There are settings in which there are, are places where you're fighting over some amount that like you're going to pay or they're going to pay or you're going to get or they're going to get. In the broader sense, the relationship is not zero sum. I, I think. The but re- in the yeah. specific context of of working that out, like it is like you're you, you're I, I think the reason I pushed on that and, and I don't I don't want like obviously like when you are negotiating with um, a cable network about how much money they're going to pay you versus how much you're going to keep for themselves. Just right. feeling that it's zero sum. <laughs> right. I, I tell you, I've, I've had that negotiation. But. Um, the, the reason I brought that up, because I think it's important and I think it relates to other things you've written, is that there are – well, I think particularly trust. Trust is non-zero-sum. And often right. the more zero-sum you act, the less trust – The more you wrote it. I, I totally agree. And the thing that often scares me about Trump, the thing that I don't think he understands and the thing that I'm not sure even America at this point is is, is really feeling like it understands is – for instance, in our relationship with our allies, you can maybe eke a little bit more military spending out of them for NATO, but at the cost of really losing a lot of the trust they have in us, a lot of the friendliness they have towards us. And in the long run, when you need them, right. when we need them on something difficult, something that's a hell of a lot more important to us than whether fucking Belgium spends another percentage point on national of GDP on national defense – they're not going to be there. And then that's true around policing as well. Which is why when you find yourselves in situations where you're actually having a negotiation, you make some decision about how big of an asshole you want to be with the thought that like you being a huge asshole doesn't just stay with this one interaction. <laughs> it becomes a part of who you are. It becomes part of your reputation. So there's a tension when you do find yourselves in specific zero-sum situations to remember the broader non-zero-sumness of like iterative, sustained, and flourishing human interactions in all sorts of ways. And that's exactly the issue here, right? Like he prides himself on being the asshole in the negotiation and having the reputation. But like it's terrifying to think of that as the model for everything. Honestly, it's almost terrifying to think of it as a model for anything. But it's one way in which I think all the conversations we're having here related. Prodigy the Elites is a book about a loss of trust in authority. Uh, so is Colony and a Nation. Something you talk about a lot in that book is yeah. what happens when, in this case, police authorities lose a trust of the citizenry. Um, how many kind of negative feedback loop interactions that creates. And this is something that I mean, God, it it feels wooly to talk about it, but I don't know. And and I I worry about this in a very fundamental way right now. We feel to me like we're in a real crisis of trust. And I don't just mean trust of, you know, the White House or trust of just like fundamentally trusting each other and talking about this stuff. Again, it's like I'm a I like talking about healthcare charts. (laughs) I mean, you know me, but this feels really bad. Yeah, it feels like it feels like it only goes one way, like to destroy is easier to build that like we're tugging on something that if we keep tugging on it, like the building's going to fall down around our ears. So I feel this in running Vox um, and I'm going to venture to say, well, I'll speak only for myself. I used to do a lot of hosting on MSNBC. Um, I felt it there. The incentives in the media right now are not to build trust. No. Um, particularly not to build trust in 
folks whom your audience views with skepticism. And that is really profoundly – one thing that I worry about with Trump is I don't think you should trust him. I am, I am like personally morally appalled at both the substance and the process of what's happening around the health care bill. And, you know, I've taken shit from Matt Iglesias and Paul Krugman over the years for, for trying to like extend good faith to Paul Ryan. Right. I feel like they ended up having <laughs> the better side of that <laughs> argument at the moment. But and yet I don't know what happens. Right. If what I do forever is just like erode people's trust. Right. Like I, I'm I'm really right. I am like well, now but, I'm just on the couch. Like I am really right. struggling with this question. <laughs> well, here's okay, let me let me provide some alternative to because uh, I feel that too, right? Here's what I would say. And this brings us back to this, like, I feel like we're having – at the core of this, right, there's this sort of like really what is democracy and how do we feel about how it is or is not functioning, right? And how do we feel about, quote, the people, right? <laughs> we've been doing these town halls. We've done three of them. We did one in Kenosha. We did one on the south side of Chicago. Uh, and we did one in McDowell County, West Virginia. And they've they've been really, really intense. Like they're an unbelievable amount of work. <laughs> Like a hilarious amount of work to make happen, particularly given that then it's just an hour show and the next day it's like, OK, now do another hour. <laughs> um, to me, part of the solution is like maybe learning to trust your fellow citizens a little bit. Like I think that part of the project of particularly the last two we did, the south side of Chicago, McDowell, West County, West Virginia was like there are actually real human people that live in these places that you've heard about as – like we're going to let them sort of speak for themselves. And part of the takeaway was like, whoa, like a lot of those people are like I feel like really thinking about this stuff in deep ways and are in are in it. And and maybe I feel like I can trust them and maybe I can even trust them across the divide of our political affiliation or racial identity, et cetera. Now, that's grandiose at some level. But maybe that like to the extent that I find hope in how that gets rebuilt, it's like. I do feel like it is maybe rebuilding trust in your fellow citizens as opposed to political leadership, et cetera. So I think the, the, the tricky part of this and the reason that I personally right now struggle with it so much is when you're involved in political conversation, political debate, there are boundaries on it and limits on it imposed by what political leadership does. I think that Look, the Obama years from this perspective are hard too. A lot of trust got destroyed there. Obviously, right. it, was a, it was a very polarized time. But I think that the president tried in that period. He personally has a belief in kind of these civic virtues. Yes. When you have a president who is modeling kind of vengeance and pettiness you just get with Trump on Twitter in the morning, but then also the kind of just total destruction – of like basic foundations of yes. ontological <laughs> action, right? Just like basic <laughs> facts, basic truth, yes. you know, the wiretapping stuff. One thing that I don't know how you do, I mean, I have ideas, but, you know, that I think requires some real thought. And I'm curious how you're thinking about it is how do you not end up in Trump's doom loop? Yeah. I, how do you not right. end up letting Trump make you that's right. like Worse. Trump? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Like uh, this is something, you know, Van Jones gave an interview to Isaac Chotner and he talked a little bit about this. Like I think we all feel like the line I keep using to think about this is a line from um, Crime and Punishment where I think it's Russ Kolnikov asked, like, if God is dead is all permitted. 
And sometimes it feels like God is dead. Trump is president. All is permitted. <laughs> like the idea that all the rules are out the window. Like I even had this, I would even do this sort of trolley thing after Trump where like someone on the liberals or left would do something bonkers or nutty, right? And conservatives would be like, that's nutty. And I'd be like, yeah, so was running around saying the president's birth certificate was faked. Worked out for them. Well, like, <laughs> let me ask you, let me let me put this not in Trump terms, but let me put it in Tom Perez terms. Tom Perez during the DNC race would go around and he had a big applause line. And he said, and I, I'm going to paraphrase this, I'm going to get it wrong. But he said something like, we should treat, and he, we, he was talking to audience right. of Democrats, right? So Democrats should treat Donald Trump with exactly the level of cooperation and good faith that Mitch McConnell treated Barack Obama with. Right. And everybody would like jump to their feet and, and scream and yell. And, and it was great. And I heard that and I thought, I, uh, I mean, this is like the, the, the desire for punishment, right? <laughs> I get it. Like, I, I get it. I hear, I hear it. And yet, if that's the cycle we're in, right. it doesn't end anywhere good. Yeah, although I think here's what I would say is I I tend to think of it in terms of my own behavior. Like, what am I going to do, right? Um, and my solution to, like, not ending up in the doom loop is just this sort of – and it's a thing I said to my staff – is, like, act as if. So my, my, <laughs> my whole approach to the Trump era is act as if reality matters, facts matter, the basic political gravity of whether you make people's lives better or worse matters, rigorous thinking, non-conspiratorial thinking – logical skepticism, like all of these things, these principles I hold as a journalist, as a thinker, as a writer, as a citizen, that they all matter, act as if that's the case, even with the knowledge they may not. Like, I, I don't know if in the end <laughs> they will, but I can't figure out how to conduct myself in my life or in my work if they don't. I don't have an alternative to that. Like, I don't know how to sort of live in some sort of Hobbesian world of war of all against all in which there are no rules and nothing matters and you can say whatever you want, whether it's true or not, and be this sort of vengeful and petty. Like I don't know how to conduct myself in that world. The world I know how to conduct myself in is the world in which the values that I believe in and hold and try to live by and work by win out in the end. <laughs> but and I don't mean this like I, – I really don't mean this in like an, a narrow ideological sense. I don't mean like – the, my preferred policies. I mean like a much deeper sense about like how one conducts oneself and act as if that does matter even if it may turn out not to because there's no other option. But but limb the boundaries of that for me. So every – we have – if you come to work at Vox, we have this document called the Vox Voice and one of the top things on it is generosity. Generosity towards arguments, include particularly arguments you don't agree with. Try to frame the best version of them. And I think about this and I worry about it and it's easier with some people than others. And it's easier with some arguments than others, right? How generous do you want to be to Steve King saying, you know, you're, we're not going to rebuild our civilization with whatever it was, basically non-white right. babies. Somebody else's What baby. is the generous version of it? Like I think that argument is morally appalling. Like right. do, I, do I go in and be like, well, back when people believed in phrenology, there was, right. I don't know yeah. how to frame that. Um, but I was sitting down with a Republican Hill staffer recently and he was pissed off about a piece Matt Iglesias wrote. And the, the piece basically said the bill is coming due right now for Republicans after lying about Obamacare for years and years, after saying that they had something in their pocket that was going to be lower deductibles and more coverage and no Medicaid cuts. It's all going to be great. That is not what they ever intended to do. 
and it is not their actual criticisms of Obamacare. And they've set up an expectation set they can't possibly fulfill. And you could extend that, by the way, on process. And, and this conversation is going to come out. It's possible a health care bill will be defeated by then. Right. But so we'll, we'll see. But I don't think that matters. This is not going to go stale. Um, and the guy was like, that was just not generous. Like, why don't you try to pass an ideological Turing test, right? That's not how I feel about it. I was like, I hear you. I really want to be able to have the conversation that you want me to have. But like you tell me that that's not a lie. Like you tell me that I can somehow say that when Republicans were saying the 13-month or depending on how you count, eight-month, nine-month Obamacare process was rushed and jamming the bill down the country's throat and now they want to pass a bill that's less popular in one month. In 22 days, they're getting it from bill text to House floor. Like (laughs) you tell me they weren't lying and like there wasn't an answer. But – but OK, so what does acting as if mean in that context? I don't think you have to be generous to bad – like <laughs> I don't think you have to be generous to bad faith. Here's what I would say. And and bad faith is part of the problem here. Now, the individual you're talking to may have been acting in good faith, but he's part of an operation that I think is acting in bad faith. To me – How do you make sure you know when somebody's acting in bad faith versus you don't agree with them and you want to believe they're so, in bad faith? So here's a good – here's a way I think that to think about it is you begin by extending charity and then you adjust. In the face of evidence, like it really, and there's actually a great, a great book by a guy named Robert Axelrod called "The Evolution of Cooperation," which is a, a short book, and I really love it because it's about how non-zero sum cooperations develop organically over time through this prisoner's dilemma tournament he sets up among computers, and it's this sort of funny thing because like all these different programmers come up with programs to win uh, iterative tournaments of prisoner's dilemma competitions, and the one that wins, every one of them is the simplest one. It's called tit for tat, which is that its opening move is to not rat out the other person in the prisoner's dilemma. And then it just does whatever they did the last time back to them. Super simple. It starts with charity. It starts with like, I'm going to cover for you. And then it just responds in kind. So now that that's not necessarily the way to conduct yourself. But my point there is that like the as if is like, yeah, I think you have to extend charity until that charity has been shown to be not be warranted. And then though, and then because this gets back in an interesting way to the law and order stuff, at what point if that charity is not warranted, if the thing the person did is really bad, does the desire for punishment, right. the desire for vengeance, yeah. what breaks it then? I actually agree with you. Tit yeah, for tat yeah. feels right. really fair. Right. You know, like right. okay, fair enough. Well, but, but but here's what here's what I would also say because I don't know the answer to that. But I do. But to go back to the Steve King thing you said, like that's a perfect example. I sat in a room after he made those comments about somebody else's babies. I sat in a room with my producers, and we debated for minutes the right way to characterize those views because it mattered to us to be precise, as vile as they were. <laughs> right, like that. That to me is acting as if. We, we took the time to think about what the most accurate characterization of those views was. We didn't just say like Steve King said some real Nazi shit, <laughs> which like is also not like a crazy, crazily hyperbolic characterization. But like the temptation is to say the non as if temptation is just like Steve King said some Nazi shit. The as if working is like, OK, what is the most accurate characterization? We're going to go back and forth about the language on this. So an interesting piece of that is where are the places and and how do you know if the as-if approach – and the as-if approach, I should say, is an approach mediated, I think, 
by one, how you'd like the world to be. That's the whole point of it. But also a little bit how you want to act in the world. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. How you feel good acting in the world. Right. Not just how you want to act, but how you your self-conception. Right. I I said the other day I was on Pod Save America and I said like I was talking, I was (laughs) blasting the shit out of the the Republican health care plan. But I was saying like I don't I don't want to be having this conversation. Like I want to be sitting here telling you like there's some good ideas here. I may disagree with them, but this thing is constructed in a serious way. And like a bunch of people on Twitter were like, you know, like, fuck you. This isn't about your moral vanity. Right. Right. Fair enough. Right. But how do you know when you're being led astray by your own desire to to frame all generously? Because I think about this a lot with Trump specifically. I think a really interesting thing that has happened, particularly in the aftermath of the election, is it is as if we believe America has invented a demagoguery in the year 2016. In the weirdest way. I totally agree. And, and as such, like as we have no historical precedent there for the is idea that – There is such amnesia. Not, but, not just amnesia, but like you were just like not allowed to say that people made a really bad choice here, right? And we have no problem saying that about other countries. Right. If Gert Wilder had won <laughs> right, right, in right. whatever it is, right. the Netherlands was yeah, he in? Yeah. Like we would have no issue or Le Pen had won in France. Like we'd have no issue being like, ugh. Man, the voters can always pick a demagogue, always right. got to watch out for that. But then right. it happens here and it's like you got to do some real thinking right. about <laughs> economic anxiety in this right. country right now. And you have to frame it very sympathetically. And I go back and forth between what I think is an honest construction of what's going on here and then the constructions that people feel comfortable with and the constructions that make people feel respected and you want to check your own biases on this stuff, right? Because we all want to lead ourselves sometimes in, a, in an ungenerous direction. And I think that's a very hard yeah. – I think this is a really hard question right now. And it goes to your thing about Steve King. Was that discussion about framing Steve King accurately or was that a discussion about just feeling yourself like you were rising above it a little bit but in a way that maybe hid like how bad this can get? That's a good question. To me, I felt it was a first-order question. Like we literally were back and forth about like – we ended up – writing a very long clause to be as precise as possible, which still was horrifying, by the way. (laughs) Like, I mean, in some ways, that's the point is that, like, I guess it just gets to sort of sloppiness that, like, Donald Trump is sloppy and encourages sloppiness. That to me is the is the way that I think of it, that, like, in the face of sloppiness, be precise is is sort of the watchword for me. Um, But there's always a temptation to be equally sloppy. I, I feel I mean, I feel it right. Like, like the president of the United States is just constantly saying like a manifestly ridiculous and untrue things. And as someone who for a living tries to say true things, like, it just seems like it seems almost like an existential affront. <laughs> that, that, that is the case. There's a dimension to this. I, I like what you say about sloppy versus precise, but I actually think there's another axis that is important here, which is the level of emotional alarm. And right. I think as a human being, just like speaking now non-political, just in my own affairs, I have a very powerful like homeostatic impulse towards four, right? I have like – if things are going wrong, I'm like, you know what? There's a way of looking at this and it's a four, not a ten. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, like I am not alarmist. And I am – you know, now I'm looking at the way we're all describing, say, the wiretapping claims where it's like – Donald Trump, who said without any evidence that, yes, in, and it has this extremely denatured language, yeah, right? Like we've drained all the blood out of what's going on here, right. and it is some of the cra- it is it is so <laughs> crazy that if you had explained it to me two years ago, like if you had just laid out what's going on to me two years ago, 
I, I would have been so aghast, right? I would be so like, I would have, insane. and you asked me just like, if you had said to me two years ago, like, we're going to be sitting here on a wild goose chase around, like, <laughs> while the FBI is investigating possible collusion with the Russian government, which we know hacked into the yes. DNC's files to influence the election, which we know, I mean, that right. part we know. Yes. Like, how do you think the American public is going to be reacting? How are you going to be I'd be like, everybody's going to be freaking the fuck out. Right. But I think, like, homeostatically, like, I think that we have pulled back to, like, okay, maybe we're normally at three. We're maybe up at five. But, that's, but that feels all, almost the way in which I'm lying, right? right. Like, but I also think I feel like my, like, home page is every day be, like, the flashing drudge yes, siren. Right, yeah, yeah, right. And, and that, just and, that. And guess the people being, like, you know, don't normalize them. You're normalizing. Like, and I, and I understand that impulse. Part of that, though, is, like, it's an amazing fact about humans that how much they can adjust to anything. You know, I I have been in situations in foreign travel where I have been in places of either intense poverty or intense oppression that I've seen. And I've just thought to myself, like, what happens to your mind if you're living under these conditions? And the answer is humans adjust. It is in some ways an incredible saving grace that, like, we adjust. But it's also the flip side of it is that, like, <laughs> and and you've seen the people that have, you know, Particularly, I would say Turkey and Russia, which I think are sort of in some ways the closest analogs, and even though they're completely different societies and legal regimes, traditions, et cetera. But reading journalists writing about that or even Italians under Berlusconi where it's like, yeah, you just adjust. Like that's the danger, but it's also human nature that they do terrible, crazy things that you just – like at a certain point, you come to expect it. So a question I got from you when I asked Twitter, the, the, the wise land of Twitter for questions for you that I thought was pretty good, was if you were a White House pool reporter, how would you be covering this administration? Not like positively or negatively, but technically. Right. Like what would you try to spend your day doing as a White House pool reporter? I do think a lot of the things – a lot of the things that have leaked from this White House have been kind of like distracting gossipy chaff, but a lot has been really important. And I think I would just be trying to do that, right? Like I would be trying to talk to cultivate as many sources as possible to talk to me about what's going on, particularly because people seem to be leaking a lot <laughs> and because there are ways in which I think understanding the inner workings of what's going on there are crucially important. The problem – I mean I don't have a solution to this, but the fundamental problem of that place is like you literally can't trust anyone at all. <laughs> How do you know the earth is round? <laughs> like at any time. So it just is, it is so destabilizing. I mean, you, you, it has become such a, a bizarre spectacle that it's like crazy making. It makes you feel, it's make, you start to feel crazy. I start to feel crazy. I can't watch them anymore. Like I read, I now do a thing where I don't watch them and read the transcript after because we get the verbate because watching them I actually feel like I learned more from the transcript. This is actually, I think, a really important thing I learned during the campaign, partly from Sopan Deb, who is a, the CBS embed who now works at the New York Times. Like he would just post transcripts all the time of Donald Trump. And Trump has this weirdly powerful cadence and like sort of salesman's patter where like he can say total nonsense and you're kind of like, OK, I guess you're saying something. And then you read it and you're like, oh, no, that was complete total nonsense. <laughs> And I just feel like in a weird way that like I feel the same way now about the Spicer transcripts where it's like you just have to read read them in print as transcribed to get the meaning of them. You know, Spicer, 
I think a lot of the fascism, authoritarianism stuff, it's overblown, certainly at this juncture. Spicer is one of the things, though, where when you watch it, the dynamics are of authoritarian regimes. It is somebody Oh, yeah. No, we are telling you what reality is. Not just that, though. It is – and Tyler Cowen wrote about this. Uh, It is somebody who has now no source of legitimacy, who didn't used to be like that, right? Totally. But now has no source of legitimacy except for the power conferred upon him by the regime. And so he's so 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 true. So true. Like he's got nothing except to – like he has to keep Donald Trump impressed by him because – like if Spicer goes out into the private sphere now, what's he going to do? He gets yelled at at the Apple store. Like It's a disaster. Like if he he is either in Donald Trump's good graces or or like the alternative right. is just so disastrous. Right, and, right. you know, and this goes back like Tyler had written this great thing when Spicer was up there with that hastily called press conference after the inaugural crowds issue. And he's like, you know, the, what we would say in an authoritarian regime is when they make the spokespeople – or when they make the officials repeat an obvious lie, it is a loyalty test right. because it cuts you off from external sources of support. And again, I think a lot oh of stuff God, is not what's so happening true. here. Um, I think there's a lot in the Trump administration's just incompetence or even just normalcy. I think a lot of things might be aesthetically right, but what I do think, but, but Spicer, it's like I look at right, that but and I'm also like, the thing I would say is like, like those dynamics are not ones you normally see in American life. No, and he and I would also say like. When you talk about the sort of fascism, authoritarianism, like the, the thing that is true is that the, the individual who we have elected president unquestionably has authoritarian impulses and no kind of like you talked about civic virtue, like no sense of civic virtue, no sense of like the the important taboos of a liberal democracy. Like you do not call into question the integrity of a judge who rules against you. Like that's just in, in some ways it gets back to like our elite manners, right? Like at some level that's elite manners, but mm-hmm. also like a really important norm of liberal democracy to respect the independence of the the judicial branch like he definitely does have profoundly overwhelming authoritarian impulses even you see it today like you see it with the ivanka thing like why is his daughter sitting in the meeting with angela merkel and is now going to work in the white house that is like what is that <laughs> somebody on twitter i forgot who it was um had this good tweet after she got her office in the west wing or whatever it is just said this may not be such a big deal, but that idea sounds good, but run it by the president's eldest child first. It's just a weird thing to say in American <laughs> politics. Exactly. Um, but let me flip this question around because we've talked a lot about things that are wrong with Trump. Are there ways in which the media is unfair to Trump? Yeah, in this way, in that I think there has been some sloppiness in turn of the sloppiness. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that like because on its face, any story you hear about him is facially plausible – there's an impulse to just like run with things before you can confirm them. And that's because you, you could tell me anything he said or did right now <laughs> that I would think to myself, like, I get they, that. I guess that could have happened. Like that was not true. It was not true about Barack Obama. So not true to you, which is in, right. Right. Like, right. That's, that's true. To not you true to about me. Barack not true Obama. Right. Although I would also say kind of. Not true objectively. Like, no, I, I agree right, with right, you. Right, right. I just – that's right. one of the things that I try to keep in no, mind. No, I know. Yeah, that, right. So not true to me about Barack Obama. Also not true to, <laughs> in a more objective sense. But so I do think like there is a – there is a degree to which like I think there has been some sloppiness and I think that they luxuriate in that sloppiness. I mean part of what makes covering them hard is that they are 
constantly laying landmines to blow up the press so that the press gets it wrong so they could call them on it as opposed to attempting to get their message out as accurately as possible, which is bizarre. It's the inverse of what White Houses usually do. Usually White Houses will, will like try to work you to be like, I want you – I just want to call you ahead of time to know we're putting out this executive order and like here are the things it does and doesn't do. They're like throw the executive order at you and like now go to air and then if you get it wrong, it's like see fake news. <laughs> so it doesn't really matter if you get it wrong on that point too. Right. Well, that's – I mean that, – Fake news if it's right, fake news if it's wrong. Well, that's also true. I mean so I do think there's some of that and I do think – look, I mean – Part of what he has done that I think is in some ways sort of brilliant and also loathsome is like the idea of turning the press into an adversary in the kind of polarized existence we live in, which is a way of just like discrediting them to half the country, which is obviously a very old trick. Like, but he has taken it to this like incredibly this incredible performative extreme. Sometimes it feels like you are being cast as the heel to his face or the face to his heel in a wrestling match. That like you're performing even as you're like trying to do your job. It's you know so what interesting I mean? you you come to that analogy because this is a piece that we're going to do but haven't done yet. That's based on, on on the same analogy. The fight, and I, I'm you can't see me, listener, but I'm air quoting fight between Trump and the press is not a fight as we normally understand it. It's a fight as the WWE understands totally. it. Yeah, it is good for both sides. It is not really harming the underlying relationship. Donald Trump is still constantly handing scoops to the Washington Post, to the New York Times, giving interviews to major outlets. I mean, the guy, my favorite detail about Donald, <laughs> about Donald Trump's level of media consumption is that I believe he is the only person in the world who DVRs the morning shows <laughs> and watches them at night. He DVRs morning shows. It's wild. And <laughs> There is a it's a really fascinating, I think, dynamic where, you know, like they have these slogans, right? He's got like the fake news slogan and that's created the capacity for like the Washington Post to have their democracy dies in the darkness slogan. Right. And it's like this wrestling match where both sides yeah. are like getting higher and higher and higher and higher. And he's like juicing subscriptions, yep. but also he's getting the opponent he needs to keep his side engaged. It is a fight both sides kind of want and on some level understand this is not like him actually trying to hurt the press, right? It's not like him actually pursuing antitrust against Jeff Bezos. Right. It isn't like him re trying to open libel laws to make them more stringent. He is just saying mean things to them and then like – In ways that, that, that are really economically helpful. benefit them, right? And it's just such a fucking weird, it is weird part of all this because it's also fake. I think he is resentful and lashes out. Like I think it's both – it's both tactical and also genuine in some ways. Like I think yeah, like, I think both things are true. Right. When the administration gave the Washington Post like really early looks at the budget. Right. That is something they could have given. Not forget right. like Breitbart. Right. They could have just given that to the Wall Street Journal. Right. 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 right? If you really want to hurt the Post and the Times versus their right. competitors, right. you give the early budget stuff to the journal exclusively. Right. Right. And nobody right. would think that was weird. Right. But they don't even do that. Right. It, it's something I thought about too of like not getting pulled into the WWE nature of it. I mean I think part of that – is focusing on substance as much as possible. Like, I think the WWE stuff get, is the most WWE-esque at the level of, like, he said this and then that's not true. And it's important to constantly harp on that in some ways. But, like, the fights on, like, how many people are going to be cut off Medicaid yeah. <laughs> are the fights to me that are much less performative ones. So here's another reader question. What issues are you right of center on? <laughs> what issues am I right of center on? Not many. I mean— at Brown University, in, in the midst of a bunch of 
postmodern relativist. I was right of center on like uh, realism. <laughs> and that's why Donald Trump won the election. Uh, that, that answer yeah, right there. No. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, I'm not I, – I don't I – don't, I, I, I think the I think the spectrum – I think the spectrum's a little hard to – What right of center ideas influence you? Well, here, here's what I would say. The entirety of the corpus of Hayek, Friedman, new classical economics and into neoliberalism like is an – I think an incredibly powerful intellectual tradition and a really important one to understand. The sort of basic frameworks of neoclassical economics, the sort of ideas about market clearing prices, about the functioning of supply and demand, about thinking in marginal terms, all of that stuff, which doesn't necessarily have a political valence in itself but – there's a political tradition that sort of draws on that. Like all that stuff is enormously influential on how I think about things. Yeah, because it's interesting because when you ran up, I always thought of the way up worked as you created a table with avatars for the different strains of your thinking. Right. Like there's like in front of you, Chris, the leftist, right. like represented by some human right. being. And then like Chris, the guy who read a lot of libertarian blogs right. and was yeah. like worried about their critique of him, like right. sitting like across the table in the form of some human being. And then kind of Chris, the uh, – sort of establishmentarian, right? <laughs> like sort of center-left establishmentarian here. And then you just hosted a conversation between Being different John parts Malkovich. of your psyche. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's there's <laughs> something to that. So like I think that the that tradition of economic thinking has been really influential. And I think like really I think it's actually a thing that people on the left really should all do is like take the time to understand all of that. Like there is a tremendous amount of incredible insight into some of the things we're talking about, like non-zero-sum settings and like the way in which human exchange can be generative in this sort of amazing way. Understanding how capitalism works has been really, really important for me and and, and has been something that that I feel like I'm a better thinker and, and analyst because of the time and reading I put into a lot of, you know, conservative authors on that topic. How has fatherhood changed your politics? People ask me this and I don't – it's weird. It's like I don't think it has because I think of that – the sphere is so – in a weird way, people will always say like, well, you have kids now. So you're thinking about the future. Or like this is like a trite line you hear all the time about like deficits. Like we're handing this to our kids and grandkids. It's like the last thing in the universe I think about around my kids is deficits. <laughs> It's such a preposterous idea <laughs> that it's the thing that ever occurs to you while you're like, you know, cleaning up your kids throw up when they got sick or like cuddling them and reading a book. I mean, fatherhood is such an, a transcendent experience and it's so explosive in so many ways. But in a weird way, like none of them have to do with politics. Like I feel like it's it's an incredible journey like emotionally and spiritually and psychologically and also intellectually because one of the amazing things about being a parent is you get to watch human development up close, which is the most miraculous thing that ever – like my daughter has gone from not reading to reading in, two, in the last two or three weeks. And watching that happen is unbelievable. So my experience of fatherhood is – is so removed from the way I just thinking about politics at all. Like it is a it's a I just don't connect them in any weird way. What do you think you would have done if you hadn't gone into politics? I should say into political journalism. Um, I think I probably would have gone to theater. Um, I did a lot of theater coming out of college. I was like the sort of managing director of a, a small company called Walkabout in Chicago and assistant directed a play. And 
I think I would have tried to be like a director and playwright, maybe try to do solo shows. I think I loved theater. I still love the theater. I love the collaborative nature of it. I love the, there's something so incredible about the art form, particularly in the era of screens and mediation, like the immediacy of it, human bodies together in a room experiencing something collectively. So I think I probably would have done that. There's a period in my life when I wanted to be a computer programmer, huh. um, like my sort of last years of high school, early years of college. And it's funny, I'm, I'm watching, I'm making my way through Silicon Valley, uh, which is- The television show? Yeah, which is brilliant. There are these scenes that really, really capture very well the, the intense high of like being locked in on a coding project that like I'm reminded of that feeling um, and what an awesome feeling that is. I didn't know you, you were that serious about coding. Yeah, for junior, senior year and then my freshman year at Brown. And then what happened was I took intro CS at Brown. I did, I, I did okay. And then, you know, it's funny. I got to like the, the, the second class, which was like the much less fun algorithms class. And I just like was like, eh. And there's part of me that's like wishes that I, I had had some guardrail to be like, just stick with the do the algorithms. <laughs> like, yes, it's not as fun and it's hard to like do the algorithms class. All right. And finally, what are three books that have influenced you that you'd recommend to the audience? So I want to talk about criminal justice books because like I there's some part of me that feels some guilt that I'm out like talking about this book that I wrote that draws on so many great books by by other people. One is a book called Locking Up Our Own by James Foreman, who's a Yale Law professor, which is a perspective on mass incarceration from the perspective of black politics. And it's really an incredible look at like what black politicians, black political representatives, black activists were saying, particularly in the years where mass incarceration was being driven. And he's got this whole thing of like, there is a blind spot around agency <laughs> of black citizens, black activists, black organizers and black voters and black politicians when we talk about mass incarceration. It's a really, really good book um, and a really important perspective on this particular debate. And, and to just draw that out uh, just one step more, what he's saying is that at the time of the Clinton crime bill was passed, the black political establishment was overwhelmingly for that bill. Yes. I mean, it's it's slightly more nuanced than that yeah. in the sense that he, he's got a whole way in which like the sort of complaints of black voices get sort of married to white political power that transforms the policy prescriptions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so this sort of, you know, you have black communities that are very much in crisis. I mean, not dissimilar to what you hear from places really hit by the opioid crisis right now. Like this is crisis level. We need help. That help that they were calling for were things like more police and also more investment, more jobs programs, et cetera, and what they got with more police, right? So that's a sort of short version of the story, but it's he he it's just a it's a great book and it's a really important perspective. The second book I would say is a really important book. Um, my research assistant, George Omith, who is a historian at Columbia, kept telling me to read it. And he would even circle things in scripts being like in scripts in drafts being like, this is a little race crafty, which was like a shorthand for Racecraft is a, a book about a series of essays about race uh, by Karen and Barbara Field that just wrestles with the fact that race as a category is created by racists. <laughs> and so every time that we talk about race, we are running the risk of, re of reinforcing the project of racists in some ways, that there's an essentializing that we do, even in talking about racial justice, even in 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 talking about racial equality, that there's an essentializing that happens. And and it's a book that really sort of forces you. And I, it's a trap that I even in this book fall into because in some ways it's almost unavoidable because of the language that we do have. 
but it's a really important book to read, I think. Um, and yeah, it's really, really brilliant. And the last book I would, I would recommend is um, a book about policing called Ghetto Side uh, by Jill Leovi. That That book has been a really influential book. And, and in a way that I think is like gives me faith in the power of writing because that book is about the story of one homicide cop basically in Los Angeles. But it's about how the police system undervalues black life in the way it goes about pursuing murder as much as in the way that it encounters black citizens and suspects. Right. Get it. I would second get aside and, and just to draw that out for a second that they're like the stereotype of this debate is that. The argument is that black communities are overpoliced, and I'd say the argument to ghetto side is that they are also underpoliced. Right, they, they are simultaneously. They and there's simultaneously. a great there's a great line about how like she compares it to a schoolyard bully who like will shake shake people down over traffic tickets and broken taillights, but is is exposed to be a coward in the face of murder. And the, you know, here's an amazing thing about this: when I was in the South Side of Chicago at the town hall. People talked about the clearance rate of CPD being so low for homicide, and everyone in the room knew the clearance rate of CPD. That that is a real live issue about like, are you solving the murders of people in our community? Anyway, great book, Ghetto Side, Julia. This is man. It's been such a pleasure. Oh man, this is great. Thank you to Chris for taking the time. Uh, I enjoyed that tremendously. I hope you did too. Thank you to my producers, Bert Pinkerton and Dan Bloom. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production, and we will be back next week.